Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We are in our introductory series to the Gospel of Matthew, the first coming of King Jesus, and we're going to really get started going through the text now. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I found myself in a dilemma as I was looking at the next message in this series. When you come to passages traditionally associated with Christmas, I know it was in the 60s this morning, but it's not exactly Christmas. But another problem is that there aren't a lot of them. I I have a pastor friend who has preached somewhere in the vicinity of 45 Christmases. Not 45 Christmas sermons, 45 Christmases. And so I asked him, well, how do you think of... uh, how do you think of uh, uh, messages to do? And he said, you hope enough people have left the church to not remember I preached this a few years ago. So there aren't a lot of them, and these passages tend to get revisited. And then when you're preaching through a gospel, and it's not Christmas time, the chances of coming to one of those passages that is familiar is very high. And in fact, we are familiar with this passage, the famous story of the wise men coming to worship Jesus and I thought, well, it's, it's been a while since I preached this. And I looked back with a bit of horror to find out I preached this last Christmas. So, I, and then I looked again and saw I preached it two Christmases before that. So I asked myself, I said, uh, self, should I skip this passage and just refer everyone to previous messages? And my answer to myself was no, three times. First, it was don't skip it because it's part of the unfolding introductory section of Matthew 1 through 4, and we want to be consistent. Second part of my answer to myself was don't skip it because the Word of God is eternal, and you can't ever overdo any one text. And so I'm never afraid of that. And the third reason, maybe a little bit more personal, don't skip it because this is in the top five of my own personal favorite studies I have ever engaged in in all my 25 years or so of preaching. It thrills my own soul, and if it wasn't weird, I would preach this text every Christmas. So the fact that you're only getting it every couple of Christmases or so, um, you should feel blessed by that. Because this story is, in my mind, one of the most compelling and thrilling ever in all the pages of Scripture. When I I still remember the the day when I was reading and studying and looking at cross-references and coming to an understanding of what this text is really talking about. And I remember this day like it was yesterday because I couldn't stay seated. I got up and I was pacing around and just thanking the Lord and I was so excited and I I was frustrated. It wasn't Sunday. I wanted to share this immediately. I believe that this text will leave you in awe that we have a God who keeps promises for thousands of years. And in all the promises of God that that are still unfulfilled, Each and every one of them will be brought to fruition in spectacular fashion. Because what the story of the wise men is about, it is about a God who keeps promises. And I think we'll see this unfold together. Let's read the entire story together. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went their way, and behold the star, which they had seen in the east, was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. This message is about the worship of the king and it is about the worship of the king being the culmination of promises made by God and we'll see that as we go. One of the most popular Christmas carols, a favorite among children in particular, is We Three Kings of Orient Are and it tells this story of Matthew 2, the wise men traveling from the east to see Jesus and in the hymn, they are, they are said to be kings from the Orient. When the hymn was written in the mid-1800s, this reflected the popular belief that's still the primary belief today that these men were from exotic, faraway places such as Persia, Babylonia, and, and India. There are numerous popular myths associated with the wise men. Just to name a few, one myth is that they worshipped Jesus the night he was born. Actually, this text here in Matthew 2 never says that. And in fact, King Herod, in his attempt to be rid of the king of the Jews, commanded that infants two years old and younger be killed. So it was not the night Jesus was born. Another myth associated with the wise men, and I'm sorry to destroy all your nativity scenes, is that the star of Bethlehem hovered over the manger for all to see the night Jesus was born. Scripture never says anyone but the wise men could see the star. And they came long after he was born. So I now know at Christmas you're going to go home and break off the star from your nativity scenes. It's all right, you can leave them. And the most popular myth is that there were three wise men. The text never says there were three men. It says there were three gifts. The evidence I'll show you points to potentially there being many more than just three. Now, the interesting thing about this story, and it's interpreted this way, is it just seems to drop out of nowhere. It just kind of parachutes in, in, into uh, Matthew chapter 2, and it, it almost doesn't seem to make sense. Mysterious men appearing simply from the east. Gentiles who come and give extravagant treasures to Jesus Christ and they treated him like a king and they worshipped him like God. And they're immortalized as examples of what all men should do with Jesus falling down before him in adoration. But nothing in scripture is just dropped out of the sky for no apparent reason. And so this morning, we have to examine this story in light of the bigger picture of redemptive history. In light of God's dealings with his people going all the way back to Abraham and the implications for the future as well, particularly for the second coming of Christ. So we have to take a, a bigger view 
And so just to organize our thoughts, I want to do this in four parts. First, I want to talk about the first visit of the wise men. I want to talk to you about the home of the wise men. I want to talk to you about the family of the wise men. And since we talked about the first visit, we'll have to end with the second visit of the wise men because there is a second one. First, let's talk about the first visit of the wise men, this particular text here. We'll briefly walk through the text and just kind of point out some interesting notes that might be helpful to you. A few months have passed since the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph are now staying in Bethlehem, just five and a half miles south of Jerusalem. Baby Jesus has already been circumcised. Mary has completed her time of purification according to the law. And the little family, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 7, is now staying in a house. They're, they're just settled in for a little while before they take the long trek north to go home. That was their original plan. Now, because the wise men had not yet come, the family was still poor. They were not well-to-do at all. They had offered the prescribed purification sacrifice of a, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, Luke chapter 2, verse 24, instead of the normal lamb. Birds were the intended sacrifice for a humble family with, with little means. You, you could literally go out and catch them. And you could, you could sacrifice them with no expenditure. But verse 1 tells us the bigger political picture. In the days of Herod the king, the wise men from the east, they came to, to Jerusalem and inquired of Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This news troubled Herod, and it troubled all of Jerusalem. Now we can guess why it would trouble Herod. He's the king of the Jews. And so anyone else making that claim is directly challenging his right to rule. But why would it trouble Jerusalem? Why would they care? Why would the whole city be agitated and frightened by the coming of these wise men? Well, first we have to understand Herod. There are several Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father to be governor of Judea during the Roman occupation, and his father actually managed to have his son Herod appointed as governor of Galilee uh, to the north. And during this time, Jewish rebels began fighting for independence from Rome, and they were making raids into Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod crushed them mercilessly. He was a brilliant military leader. When the Parthians invaded Palestine, Herod had to run to Egypt, but then he went to Rome, and he made a deal with Octavian and with Mark Antony. He said, make me the king of all the Jews, and I will crush these invaders. And that's exactly what happened. And so from about 37 BC onward, Herod the Great was now king of all the Jews. And the irony here is that he was an Idumean. It means he, he was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He was clever. He was a thinker. He thought ahead. He married a high-ranking Jewish woman to try to solidify his, his uh, connection to the Jews. He even helped the Jews through tremendous times of economic hardship. He funded a massive remodeling project for the temple in Jerusalem. But he drew a line in the sand at one point. No one threatened his right to rule. He eventually had his own wife, two of his own brothers-in-law, his mother-in-law, and two of his own sons murdered because he suspected them of treason. 
In fact, five days before he died, he had a third son executed. When Jesus was about a year old, right before Herod's death, Herod had all the most important citizens in Jerusalem imprisoned. And he gave orders that the moment he died, they were to all be executed. And you know what his reasoning was? He knew that no one would mourn his death. And so he guaranteed that all Jerusalem would be weeping and make it look like they were mourning for his death. He was wicked to the core. He was the epitome of tyranny and despotism. And now, at about the age of 70, Herod gets a visit from wise men from the east. And these wise men are saying, the true king of the Jews has been born. You don't cross that line with Herod. Why would this trouble him? Because he lived for his idol of power. Why would it trouble Jerusalem? Because when Herod gets mad, people die. When Herod gets mad, heads roll. When Herod gets mad, the weeping and the mourning and the grief and the crying begins. Bloodshed was on its way. Herod consulted with all the chief priests and the scribes we see here those who were experts in Old Testament prophecy, to find out where the Messiah, where the Christ was supposed to be born. And in verses 4 through 6, they rightly answered him from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem. And here's just a little side note here. It blows my mind that all the chief priests and the scribes of Israel are just being told that the king of Israel has been born, and they're asked the question, where would he be born in Bethlehem? And they don't even seem excited about it. As we'll find out later in the gospel, the leaders of Israel themselves didn't want Messiah to come because they worshiped the same idol that Herod did, and that was power. Herod gets information from the indifferent chief priests and scribes that Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And so he brought the wise men back, and he lied to them. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And in fact, Herod wants to murder Jesus. But at this particular moment, the Magi, the wise men, they don't know this. So they go on their way. And the star leads them to the very house that Jesus is staying in. Now, I should note a significant aspect of the star. Once again, Scripture never says that anyone except the wise men can see the star. It never says that. It reminds us, reminds me, that in the very same way, salvation from sin is solely the work of God. It's exclusively the gift of God. Jesus himself said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who was the star for? The star was for the wise men and for them only. And I think when we go through the rest of this, you're going to see that they warranted this sort of special attention. And now the star has shown in the east and uh, where they came from, but the text doesn't explicitly say that they followed the star. It doesn't say that. The fact that they had to inquire of Herod where Messiah was to be born tells us that the star got them started. It got them going. But now the star reappears and now brought them not only to Bethlehem, but to the exact house where Jesus was staying several months after his birth. And how did they respond to the God-given revelation of Christ? Verse 10, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
All their longing was over. All their searching was over. They had no farther to go. The Messiah they had heard of in the shadows of prophecies was now presented in the brilliance of the glory of God resting over the house in which the baby king of the Jews rested in his mother's arms. This was not, by the way, the wise men receiving Christ. This was Christ receiving the wise men. And they were overwhelmed with rejoicing. Verse 11, And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Verse 11 is the act of repentant men. This is the act of men who know that Christ is worthy and that they are not. That Christ is exalted and they are not exalted. This is the act of men who understand that the worth and the value and the merit of Jesus Christ was worth traveling these many weeks, these many miles for the privilege of humiliating themselves on a dirt floor in the presence of their Savior. Why is this important? It's important because for all of their knowledge, for all of their wealth, for all of their prestige, for all of the glorious history of the Magi, one thing they could not do for themselves is atone for their own sins. They needed a Savior. They opened their treasures, plural, treasure boxes, treasure trunks, or just generally something in which you place treasures. And now they give these famous gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Scripture is fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit made sure we know the exact gifts that were being given. In the ancient Near East, and especially from the wise men, these gifts would have significance. They would have importance. This wasn't just something that they ordered on Amazon the night before they, they arrived. You've done that. Oh, I don't know what to get. Let's just do a big search. Gift that I don't know about and search. No, these had importance. They had meaning. They, they had significance. And these gifts demonstrated their accurate view of Christ. First of all, they acknowledged his status as king. They gave him gifts of gold. doesn't mean a little chunk of gold. Gifts, plural, of gold. Gold has universally been a symbol of royalty and rule. A thousand years earlier, the queen of Sheba came to give honor and tribute to King Solomon and brought, 1 Kings 10, spices and very much gold. They acknowledged his status as king. They also acknowledged his worth. They acknowledged that he's worthy. They gave frankincense. Frankincense is an oil that was costly. It was used only on the most special of occasions. It has a scent like pine and honey and lemon all mixed together. It's an amazing scent. And it signifies something unique. It signifies something momentous. And then they acknowledged not only that he is king, they acknowledged that he's worthy, they acknowledged his humility. They acknowledged his humility. They, they gave myrrh. Myrrh was valuable, but significantly less expensive than frankincense. But it was much more the common man's spice or the common man's perfume, so to speak. Myrrh would be given to Jesus two more times. Myrrh was also used as an anesthetic. 
Mark 15 records that myrrh mixed with wine was offered to Jesus right before his crucifixion, but he refused it so that he would fully experience the agony of his suffering for our sin without any numbing, without any relief, without any help whatsoever. And then myrrh was given to Jesus one last time. His body was wrapped in burial clothes and saturated in myrrh and in other spices. Every time myrrh was given to Jesus, it's associated with his humility, his humiliation, his pain, and ultimately with his death. We don't know if the wise men were fully aware that Jesus would grow up to die and to be the sacrifice for their sins, but they did at some level understand and acknowledge his humility. How did they know he was humble? God came to earth as an infant. That's humility. Now, before we leave this part of our message, the what happened part, we should mention the star one more time. The star of Bethlehem has not only been the subject of discussion by theologians, but probably even more so by astronomers. Some think it was a meteor. Others think it was a comet. Others think it was a particularly bright planet or a literal star. Others say it was a lineup of planets such as Jupiter and Saturn. Some say it was a nova, which is an explosion on a star. Others say it was a supernova, an explosion of a star. But none of those explanations fit the text of Scripture. Verse 9, Now after hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, was going on before them, until it came and stood over the place, where the child was. So what's the star? We could make a strong case that the star is actually a group of angels leading the wise men. There's actually reasonable evidence for that. I think there's better evidence, though, that the star of Christ, very simply, is the glory of God. The manifested glory of God, manifested as light. The same manifestation of God's glory which appeared to Israel as a pillar of fire by night, when he led them through the wilderness to Canaan. This is a very powerful thought because the glory of God resting over Bethlehem is massive in significance. 600 years earlier, <clears throat> just before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians because of the centuries of disobedience by the Jews, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that something terrible, something unspeakable was about to happen in Jerusalem, more terrible than invasion, more terrible than kidnapping, more terrible than being exiled, more terrible than death, more terrible than destruction. What was the most terrible thing that could happen? God was going to leave them. Ezekiel 10 records the glory of God rising from the temple in Jerusalem in what appeared to Ezekiel as a massive heavenly chariot and the glory of God departed through the eastern gate. 600 years earlier, the glory of God left Israel. Now the glory of God has returned in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the first visit of the wise men. Let's look at the second part, the home of the wise men. Where were the wise men from? Why would they as Gentiles be so interested in the king of the Jews? Why is verse 10 here? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why is that? This has to be more than just tourists. It has to be more than a passing interest. They weren't just interested. They were worshipers who, for all intents and purposes, are acting like, listen carefully, they have just found the very purpose of their lives. 
They have found that thing for which they have been searching their entire life. Now, the predominant view of where the wise men were from, and it has a lot of support both in history and in the great possibility that they were from a tradition influenced by the prophet Daniel uh, six centuries back in Babylon, this has a lot of evidence. It has a lot of, uh, it makes sense that back in Babylon, Daniel would have left his writings and he wrote of Christ who is to come. And that view has a lot of merit that would help them be Persian or Babylonian and maybe, maybe even Indian. And so the predominant view is that these wise men were priests or astrologers from Persia or maybe Chaldean astrologers from Mesopotamia. That's what used to be Babylonia. What the hymn writer calls the Orient. There are good reasons for this view. The first reason is that the many uses of the word magi or wise men in some of your translations. Magi comes from magos, plural magoi, and it's a term strongly associated with the pagan priest class of Persians, astrologers, fortune tellers. The ancient historians Pliny and Tacitus associated magi with sorcery. That's where we get our word magic and magicians. We also see the highlight of astronomy in this account. The the, the star, of course. The magi were traditionally very strongly associated with the study of astronomy, the study of the stars. So, seeing the star of Bethlehem in the sky, this is right up their alley. This is like, hey guys, this is what we do. This is our thing. Let's follow the star. And you have the strong testimony of some of the early church fathers. Clement of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, Cyril of, of Jerusalem believed that the magi came from Persia, Jerome and Augustine believed them to be astrologers from Babylon. Now, based on this prominent view, many traditions have developed. Almost all of them portray these men as three kings from various parts of the world. The most famous of all traditions comes from Armenia, that the three men were Balthazar, king of Arabia, Gaspar, king of India, and Melchior, king of Persia. But now we're really getting into the realm of Santa Claus-like traditions. There's just one legend after another. In all the known traditions from early sources, there are at least 30 different names from as many different ethnic groups or countries. Persians, Indians, Parthians, Assyrians, Medes, many, many others. And so the church's view historically has been that these men are from Persia or from Babylon. Other traditions have them from other various parts of the world the weakness in this view though that the really the straw that breaks the camel's back in this hermeneutic here is that the only connection to redemptive biblical history is speculative it's a guess that if they're from persia then they were influenced by the writings of the prophet daniel what's the problem with that there's nothing in the text of scripture that actually says that it's just a really good guess But a really good guess can be just as wrong as a really bad guess. There's one view, however, that presents the very strongest actual evidence. And so we're going to do a little investigation, and I I promise you this connects to the redemptive purpose of the story of the wise men. This is not a story just parachuting out of nowhere that, well, I guess this is so that that, uh, kids' pageants at Christmas time in churches, kids can come riding on camels and dress up like kings. Maybe that's what it's for. No, it fits. What is that view? 
That view is that the Magi, the wise men, were from Arabia. They're from Arabia, the area on the other side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea from Israel. And I want to give you five clues. The first clue is the term Magi itself. Most of the ways Magi has been used in history is generally negative from a biblical standpoint. Fortune tellers, sorcerers, magicians, occultic arts, astrology, and so forth. But historically, it's also used in a neutral sense as simply someone possessing either supernatural knowledge and ability or, or simply someone who seeks spiritual wisdom. Someone who has dedicated their lives to seeking after wisdom would be called being among the Magi, the wise men. And we can prove this even from the Bible. In the days of King Nebuchadnezzar, the faithful Jew, Daniel, was appointed chief of whom? Chief of the Magi. Obviously, the term used in Matthew here, it can't be speaking of astrologers or fortune tellers or pagans. These were monotheistic worshipers of God and God alone. And they were Trinitarian because they believed that God in the flesh was God as well. The term has been used to refer to other peoples other than Persians or Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And so the term Magi alone is very open to simply being faithful spiritual men seeking wisdom who may or may not be from Persia and Babylonia. So the term Magi doesn't prove the Babylonian or Persian view at all. It's the second clue that these men were from Arabia. And that is the testimony of other early church fathers that's even more telling. In AD 155, Justin Martyr wrote in his book, Dialogue with Trypho, and he said nine times that the Magi were from Arabia. Justin was born at around 100 AD in Samaria, just north of Israel, literally in the next generation after the apostles. He may have been born and the apostle John may have even still been alive. That's how close they were. Around AD 208, in Carthage, North Africa, the famous Christian theologian Tertullian wrote in his famous work against Marcion, that the Magi were kings from Arabia. And specifically, he called the East Arabia. He specifically mentions that Arabia was notably known for and economically strengthened by their trade in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We'll come back to that. He was the first known teacher to write that the Magi were kings. And he also asserts that at the second coming, Messiah will again receive the wealth of Arabia in a time of peace and prosperity. In A.D. 96, the Apostle John is still alive. Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church at Corinth and he, he uh, identifies the regions of the east as the country of Arabia. And he mentions rich in frankincense and myrrh. There's a third clue, geography. The Magi are said to be from the east. In the Bible, the east is a specific geographic reference to Arabia. Both Old Testament and New Testament. Judges three, verse, or 6, verse 3. Judges 7, verse 12. Judges 8, verse 10. Jeremiah 49, 48, 28. Uh, Ezekiel 25, 4. Ezekiel 25, 10. The east is Arabia. Now when we read the east in the Bible, the tendency just culturally is for us to think of Babylon and Persia and India. But if you look at a, at a map, you're more going north, not east. Babylon and Persia were considered the lands of the north. 
The Bible speaks of the Assyrians and the Babylonians as being the people of the north. Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 1, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 2, many other passages. Now, somebody might bring this up. There's always one in every crowd. Wait a minute. Isaiah 41 and 46 says Cyrus of Persia is from the east. And you just said Persia isn't in the east. Well, the word translated east for Cyrus of Persia is not the normal geographic word for east. It's just a general word that means that way, over there, kind of where the sun comes up. Does the sun come up exactly in the east every single day? No, depending on the seasons, it's in a different place. Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51, Persia is in the north. And so when you put all that together, it's much more accurate to say the east is the region of Arabia, which is due east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. Here's a fourth clue, the gifts of the Magi. In the ancient Near East, as early as the 5th century BC, Arabia was known as the country that specialized in producing spices, especially frankincense and myrrh. Ancient historians Herodotus and Pliny both separately wrote that southern Arabia, ready for this, was the only country in the entire Near East that produced frankincense and myrrh. They were it. History of Arabia being the center of spice production is extensive. As a matter of fact, the ancient Greek historian Diodorus He died just 30 years before the time of Christ. He witnessed that the kingdom of Sheba in particular, which is in Arabia, became the wealthiest kingdom in the world because of the spice trade. Now you're saying, why are you keep bringing up spices? Spices and gold were what oil is today. If you had spices in your country, you were wealthy. Why is it that the area of the Middle East, Arabia, seems to have everything? They have the oil and the spices, right? Theodorus also witnessed that Arabia had another plentiful resource, so plentiful that it wasn't mined, it was dug out of the ground in chunks, and that is gold. He wrote this, There is also mined in Arabia the gold called fireless, which is not smelted from ores as is done among other peoples, but is dug directly from the earth and is found in nuggets about the size of chestnuts. Can you imagine digging up a chunk of gold the size of a walnut or a chestnut? You're, you're done working for the rest of your life. And they just went out in their backyard and dug this stuff up. Here's a fifth clue. And that is God's protection of his redemptive plan. God's protection of his redemptive plan. Specifically, God uses Egypt and Arabia to protect his redemptive plan. Joseph... Back in Genesis, threatened by his brothers, is sold by Arabian spice traders for, for survival and is protected in Egypt in preparation for his providential rise to power and his eventual uh, leading of his family to Egypt to protect them from the famine. You remember the story of Moses. His life was threatened twice. It was first threatened as an infant, so he was rescued by a princess of Egypt. And as an adult, he was rescued by fleeing to Midian. See also Arabia. God is protecting his redemptive plan. The kings or wise men from Arabia came and they gave to Jesus the wealth of their land. And and listen, even a small amount of gold and frankincense and myrrh would have been enough to live on for a number of years. What happened when the wise men left? Verse 13. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and departed from Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. Would they have worried about going? No, they had a trunk full of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They could live as long as they needed to. God protected his redemptive plan. And in protecting and providing for Jesus, God is looking to the entire plan of redemption for all mankind. Now, you might be asking, who cares? What is the point of this? I don't care if the Magi were from Persia, Babylonia, or from Kern County. It doesn't make any difference to me. Who cares? Well, let's talk about the family of the wise men. The family of the wise men. Who were they? Who were they? Who cares that they're from Arabia? The question is this. Was there a group of people living in Arabia who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel come and who would give him incredible, vast wealth and who would worship him, who would make him their life's pursuit such that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? And if so, why are they here? Why are they included in Scripture? Remember, God never just drops random stories into the text. This was not Matthew going, you know, that was kind of a cool story. I think I'll just put it in here. He never drops a random story that has no connection and no bearing on everything before it and everything after it. Epiphanius, Epiphanius rather, the fourth century bishop of Salamis in Cyprus, he had a theory, and it's the theory that fits Scripture and really surpasses all the others. For the sake of time, I'm going to do this briefly. I'm going to suggest maybe you note the references but we're going to be in Genesis for a minute. I don't have time to turn there. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abram. God has chosen this man to be the means that, that he will affect his redemptive plan to redeem us from sin, to redeem all the earth. And he promises to Abraham he'll be made into a great nation. His name will be great. And you remember this one. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we've taught that many times here at Grace Bible Church that Obviously, the nation is Israel and all the families of the earth are blessed because it's in Israel that Christ, our Savior, is born. He would live a perfect, sinless life. He would die on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would come to faith in Him. But in Genesis 17, God gets even more specific with Abram about this covenant. Covenant. And now He renames him Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. And he says, many nations will come from you. Many kings will come from you. The land of Israel will be given to the specific great nation for all time. Genesis 17, 8. Later in chapter 17, God promises that this great nation will come through a singular son. One person who will be born to Abraham. This would be Isaac. Isaac would be the son of blessing, the son of promise. And of course, through Isaac came Jacob. Through Jacob came the whole nation of Israel. We get even more information in Genesis 22 that the offspring or the seed of Abraham in the offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed and the Apostle Paul commented on this promise in Galatians 3.16 now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed or to his offspring it does not say and to offsprings referring to many but referring to one and to your, to your offspring who is Christ. Eventually the mother of Isaac, Abraham's beloved Sarah, 
she died. You have Abraham, you have Isaac. And so what did Abraham do? He did what any man in this time did. Genesis 25, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'a. All these were the children of Keturah. Keep this in your head here. You recall that before Isaac was born, the chosen son, Abraham, had taken matters into his own hands to try to speed up God's plan. And he had a son through his wife's servant. And he had a son named Ishmael. You recall what happened to Ishmael. To avoid massive family conflict, Abraham had to, Abraham had to send Ishmael and his mother away, as recorded in Genesis 21. And in fact, Ishmael's genealogy is recorded later in chapter 25 with his sons listed as well. But back to the sons of Keturah. Keturah almost certainly was one of the handmaidens of Sarah, his original wife, and he had obviously gotten to know her. He has sons through Keturah, six of them, but these aren't the sons of promise. These are not the sons. This is not the one son, Isaac, through whom the one chosen nation was to come. But Abraham loved them. They were his boys. Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. And they had sons, including Sheba and Dedan and others. So what did Abraham have to do to keep Isaac as the sole heir of God's promises to Abraham? To keep a potential war from happening in generations to come? Genesis 25, beginning in verse 5, tells us Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. The sons of his concubines refers to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and Keturah, probably a servant to Sarah. Why did he send them away? They couldn't be a threat to Isaac, the promised son, the legal firstborn of Abraham's household. And so to keep peace, the family had to be separated because this is a time when nations are forming. And so he sends them away so that the, so that the people of Isaac would never be at war with the sons of Keturah because they all have the same father. And so what we have here is really kind of a sad family situation. God promised Abraham a son through whom would come the promised nation of Israel, through whom the world would know God. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't be patient, so they had Ishmael through Hagar. Abraham even asking God, would you make Ishmael the promised son? And God said, no, it'll be through Isaac. And then after his precious Sarah died, Abraham married again. He had six more sons through Keturah. And because Isaac was the promised child, Abraham had to send away Ishmael and send away all the sons of Keturah. You cannot remove the emotion from this. You cannot just make this a, a little addendum in the Bible. You can't glibly pass by the fact that Abraham had seven sons that he sent away and never saw again for the rest of his life. He sent them away with gifts, meaning enough wealth to give them a start in life. And he would never see them again. Can you fathom that? 
sending away seven sons and never seeing them again. I would imagine there was a lot of weeping in Abraham's tent for many months, maybe years. And where were the sons of Keturah sent? Where did they settle? They settled in Arabia. Now remember, God promised not only would a great and chosen nation come from Abraham, but all the nations of the world would be blessed. It was always God's plan to offer salvation to the Gentiles. That's always been His plan to those not descended specifically from Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and so forth. So what happened to the sent away sons of Abraham, to the people descended from the sons of Keturah? Was there a group of people living in Arabia, who had a vested interest in seeing the Messiah of Israel come and who would give incredible wealth and who would fall down and worship. There's only one group that fits that category. And that is the group that Epiphanius of Salamis preached in the 4th century, that the wise men, those looking for spiritual truth, were descended from the sons of Keturah dismissed by Abraham and yet looking to a future hope of family reunification and in the everlasting, never forgotten family ties and connections of the ancient Near East, the sons of Keturah would know, they would know that the descendant of Isaac, the descendant of Jacob, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of David, the descendant of Mary, the promised offspring who would bless all peoples, would be their cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the sons of Keturah found their family. And in Jesus Christ, the wise men of Keturah found their Savior. They found their King. Now, we started with the first visit of the wise men. That implies a second visit, and that's our final part this morning, the second visit of the wise men. Why are the Magi, almost certainly the descendants of Abraham, important in the scope of redemptive history? They prove that God is faithful to His promises. I told you that at the very beginning, that this is what this is about. They prove that God is faithful to His promises. How do we know God is faithful? Because the other sons of Abraham find their place in the future kingdom of God as well. Let me prove this from prophecy. Psalm 72 is a royal psalm written by King Solomon, son of David. It's a request for great, tremendous blessing to be poured out on Solomon. But in reading the psalm, and I don't have time to read the whole thing, you quickly see that Solomon, he's not looking at just himself. He's looking beyond himself. He's looking to a future. He's looking to a future king whose reign is far greater than his and far more vast. Psalm 72, 8 and 9, may he, this future king, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. This is worldwide dominion. Solomon never sought this, nor did he ever have it. Verse 10 of Psalm 72 says, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Who are the kings of Sheba? Sheba was the grandson of Abraham and Keturah, settling and forming the great nation in Arabia. Solomon prays in Psalm 72, verse 11, May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Verse 17 says, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. And so in the future, will the Arabian tribes descended from Keturah And those descended from Ishmael, will they bring him gifts? 
as Psalm 72.10 predicts they will. The future glory of Israel and Israel's Messiah King now reigning on earth in the millennial kingdom. This is described in Isaiah 60. Listen to this glorious hope. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise among you and his glory will be seen upon you. Then nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. But then the text gets very specific. Very specific about some of the peoples who will be coming to worship and to give tribute and to give gifts to their Messiah King. Beginning in verse 5, Isaiah 60 says, Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Verses 6 and 7 says, A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian. That is Abraham's son through Keturah. And Ephah, this is Abraham's grandson, son of Midian, son of Keturah. And all those from Sheba shall come. Abraham's grandson, son of Jokshan, son of Keturah. All the flocks of Kedar, that is the son of of Ishmael, shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. Meaning what? Meaning I will receive, this is Messiah speaking, I will receive the gifts you give me and I will beautify my house with them. What gifts will the sons of Keturah bring? Isaiah 60 verse 6 also says, they shall bring gold and frankincense. But no myrrh. Myrrh is associated with death. With the death of Christ in the New Testament both as the anesthetic offered him at the cross and as a spice soaking the grave clothes of Christ, but now he ever lives. No more myrrh. And myrrh, by the way, is never again mentioned in in association with Christ in the Bible, ever. His death is complete. He's been raised from the dead. Sin is completely paid for. He was the once-for-all sacrifice that satisfied the righteous anger of God against your sin. And through this incredible passage in Matthew 2, the future we see in Isaiah 60, you can see that God is a redeeming God who always keeps His promises. He will always save the elect. He is a God that you can trust. He's a God that I can trust. And so through the wise men, men who were truly wise because they worshiped the true and living God and the person of Jesus Christ, we see in them this principle lived out which Paul gave us in Galatians 5 or Galatians 3:29 if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise we see the sons of Keturah came home for a moment when they met the baby Jesus but then they were on their way 
But according to Isaiah 60, they'll come home again permanently when they march into Jerusalem with their gold and with their frankincense, maybe with a phrase like, remember this, remember this. Reunited with their father Abraham, reunited with their savior, and incidentally cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, boy, that'd be kind of neat to be part of the sons of Keturah. I just read this verse from Galatians 3.29 that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're treated like they are. And that you too, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you will come home just like they will. You see that God is faithful and you see that nothing in Scripture is parachuted there for no reason. It all connects to the redemptive plan of God. How do you connect to the redemptive plan of God? Because you have two choices. You can be a part of this glorious story or you can be excluded from it. And the way to be part of the story is to receive Christ as your Savior and to trust Him to have paid the rightful penalty for your sin to God. And you know what that means? All these names I've read to you, all these people in the story we've talked about, so many different people, you'll get to meet all of them. But at the very top of that list, you will meet the king. You will meet the one that the wise men worshipped and that we worship this day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. When we see that you had Abraham send these boys away, going all the way back to the middle part of Genesis, and we can fast forward ahead to a future kingdom in which those boys come home, they and their families. Given your ability to hang on to those that you have chosen, that gives us confidence in the assurance of our salvation that for all who have received him, to all who have been called by his name, we have been given right, the right to be called children of God. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is secure and that someday we will meet our Savior face to face. We thank you that every promise is certain. We thank you that when Jesus said that we are in his hand and no one will snatch us out, that we have the same confidence that these far-off Arabian descendants of Keturah and Abraham, we have the same confidence that they had, that they have found their king, they have found their savior, and we have as well. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that we serve a resurrected savior who will bring all of redemptive history to its perfect climactic conclusion. And we get to be a part. And for that, we give you praise and honor and thanks. We pray in Christ's name, amen.